Was there an Adam? Was there an Eve? Or did we evolve from what we conceived? Either way, we got what we needed when the sun shone down on the garden. Hey everybody, this is Harvey Sluggo Wasserman, back with you for the 93rd uh, Green Grassroots Emergency Election Protection Coalition Zoom call, otherwise known especially in New Orleans as the Gree Gree. We are glad to have you all with us. We have more than 30 people uh, to start here at five o'clock p.m. on Monday Eastern time in the United States of America in the, the, the year of our Lord, uh, as about as interesting a year as, as it can possibly get. Um, the news just keeps on coming. Uh, I wanna uh, uh, remind you that this is uh, rebroadcast we are live on YouTube, and it's rebroadcast on um, uh, Thursday, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, otherwise at prn.live. And um, we, so for that reason, because we go on the radio, we're also broadcasted by at least one Pacific radio station. Uh, we do not use uh, the, the, the seven deadly four-letter curse words immortalized by George Carlin, although you are free to curse in Yiddish um, uh, or any indigenous tongue uh, that you might come up with. So uh, we're glad to have you all with us. Um, and, and I wanna, we have an incredibly action-packed uh, agenda this week, uh, uh, like, like all weeks. Uh, we are gonna start in the first half hour with a presentation uh, coordinated by Chris Bricka Tatanka, uh, affiliated with the Romero Institute um, in California. We're gonna be talking about the Green New Deal, uh, the attempt to get California 100% green. And uh, also with this, uh, I don't know if you can call it revival, whatever you wanna call it, of uh, the attempts to bring back nuclear power, atomic energy. Uh, the problem with killing nuclear power is that it does not have a heart to drive a stake through. So um, it keeps coming back at us. Uh, we now see the, the Nation magazine of all people caving into the nuclear power industry, truly astounding. But uh, the biggest push is in California at Diablo Canyon, we'll talk about that. We joined at the half hour uh, around 5.30 uh, by John Brakey, our uh, erstwhile campaigner for democracy in Arizona. And he's brought with us uh, a truly remarkable guy, Ken Bennett. Ken, we've never met, but I'm glad to see you. Glad to, glad to have you on with us. We'll be to you in about a half hour, and we're gonna talk in depth about the amazing pro, um, progress of ballot image libraries in the state of Arizona, uh, and, and earth-changing uh, development. Really, really powerful, very, very important. Uh, in the third half hour, at the top of the next hour, around six o'clock Eastern time, uh, my co-convener, Joel Siegel, is gonna start a conversation about a national summit uh, that we are gonna uh, currently planning for June 11th, where we will uh, put together a, a plan uh, with some of the mo most important of our national leaders on the issues of election protection and small d democracy. Um, and uh, a lot of stuff that we have learned in Arizona um, and elsewhere is gonna become very, very relevant to this discussion. Um, of, of hearkening back, of course, to the Georgia miracle, uh, which, which started in many ways on these calls uh, and put two, uh, count them two, uh, progressive Democrats uh, into, the, uh, into the US Senate. Remember, however, that we are, are nonpartisan. Um, we, we do not support uh, one party over the other, but we are more than happy to critique uh, uh, each party uh, as it deserves it. In that third half hour after six o'clock, we're also gonna be joined by Julie Levine, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Julie Wiener in, in New York, uh, uh, talking about some remarkable um, um, reforms that are happening in New York election law. I know that um, John Brakey, you've been in touch with Julie. A lot of the stuff um, that has happened in, in New York is very relevant to what's happening in Arizona and vice versa. Well, Eric Lazarus uh, is bringing on a, an expert to talk about the impacts of getting rid of student debt. We have a Mr. Gutierrez from Texas, who's gonna discuss from Common Cause actually in Texas, gonna discuss 
what's going on there with elections. Uh, Peter Matthews from California, a congressional candidate, has had a very interesting experience uh, with, with mailers, sample ballots, which are is quite astounding. And we're also going to revisit the, the, the you can't make this up situation in Ohio with the gerrymandering there uh, and in Florida uh, and in New York, which has gone in, in many different directions. Let's put it that way. So we are joined by Joel Siegel. Uh, Joel, glad to have you with us. Um, and uh, uh, as you can see, we're going to be uh, really hard pressed uh, to get through this agenda on time, but we certainly will try. So uh, again, John Brinke, Ken Bennett, great to have you with us. We'll be to you in about a half hour. Uh, I want you to meet Tatanka Bricka. John knows him well, but Ken, you, you don't. Uh, he is our man in California on the case for the Green uh, uh, New Deal in California, and also the insanity of trying to keep open the Diablo Canyon nuclear plant. You, you could not make this stuff up. But uh, uh, Tatanka, uh, uh, go right ahead, please, and, and let's get going here on on green energy in California. Okay, thank you, Harvey. And uh, welcome everyone. It's wonderful to be uh, on, this, on this program tonight or today. Um, we're gonna be joined by Ben Eichert, who is the program director for the entire Let's Green California. That's what our initiative is called. It's not called California Green New Deal. It's called Let's Green California. I put in the chat all the information you'll need from Romero Institute, it's romeroinstitute.org. And you can check out the Let's Green initiative there and also the Lakota People's Law Project. The Let's Green California initiative is a combined operation of the Romero Institute and the Dolores Huerta Foundation. Full partners in this and we are seeking um, other full partners, non nonprofits who really have uh, loyal followings and are totally dedicated to getting to a zero carbon in the state of California by 2030, not by 2050, by the time of which we'll all be either underwater or toast or both. So I am going to be joined in about two minutes with Ben Eichert. I want to tell you the history of this. Um, Romero Institute is the is the institute founded by Danny Sheehan, constitutional attorney, and his wife, Sarah Nelson, former head of the labor division of National Organization of Women, for Women, sorry. And the Christic, earlier the Christic Institute in Washington, DC. Danny's a constitutional attorney who most of you know from Watergate days, from Karen Silkwood case, which effectively shut down all nuclear power in the US because he raised the, the level of uh, lawsuits that individuals could file against private nuclear corporations to infinity, which made it not very financially attractive for the nuclear industry because they have no solution to the ongoing radiation of workers nor to the waste disposal. And also he has been the attorney for, he uncovered the Iran-Contra here, the Iran-Contra, uh, situation and was prepared to put all those folks to jail and has been the attorney for the Standing Rock people and out of uh, Standing Rock and out of Pine Ridge. So this started a few years ago, but more, more recently, just in the last two years, an attempt to take the fifth largest economic power in the world, which is the state of California, and to clean up our act here and do our part to bring California into more alliance, more uh, harmony with Mother Nature and to stop the polluting that we are doing. So the initial attempt was a 350 page omnibus bill for the state of California which covered every major area. We're, we're talking about agriculture, we're talking about public banking, water, heavy industry, a lot of, a lot of uh, forests, management, et cetera. There's about seven major areas. It's a three-year plan. This is year one, 2022. We're taking on perhaps the easiest one, which is automobiles and light trucks and basically getting all those 
to electric vehicles getting off the carbon model of the internal combustion engine. This is going very well, which is why I wanted uh, to have Ben, and please let me know when he does join the call because I don't see all people coming in. He should be in about now. He, uh, ben uh, is someone who is an SEIU organizer who really got, uh, saw the power of grassroots organizing at the age of 19 in Nicaragua and El Salvador and was just amazed at the, the amount of uh, community work that people can do together there. He is an SEIU organizer from the state of New York with the Nurses Association and worked on Senator Whitehouse's campaign. Oh, here he comes right now. So um, Ben, when you come in, if you could put him on the screen as well. Um, Welcome, Ben Eichart. I, I will uh, basically give a quick introduction to Ben. He is leading the, the state of California for the Romero Institute and the Dolores Huerta Foundation as the lead organizer, the program director of Let's Green California. Um, and he is passionate about social justice. He has worked uh, as an organizer he and a negotiator for the New York State Nurses Association, uh, field director for US Senator Sheldon Whitehouse's successful reelection campaign in 2012, a former uh, poli-sci student at Brown University. We have, uh, we were gonna have 45, then we're gonna have 30. I think we have less than that now, Ben, because we have a very, dis we have a wonderful, number of wonderful guests on. So sometime around, uh, half past of the hour or a little after we're gonna to have to get on. But why don't you take it from here and talk about this first stage of a three, three year plan and what we've done with it, this coalition of labor, environment, environmental justice and interfaith and some of the breakthroughs that we had most recently. Welcome, Ben. Sure, thanks so much, Tatanka. Nice to meet everyone. So yeah, my name is Benjamin Eichert. I'm the director of climate programs for the Romero Institute. The Romero Institute's a 501c3 nonprofit organization. We're based in Santa Cruz, California on California's central coast. And we do most of our work through sort of separate identified programs. We've got two primary programs that we're focused on right now. One is called the Lakota People's Law Project. It's our flagship. It's been around since 2004. We've been working and partnering with Native American tribes and leaders, mostly in the Dakotas across a range of justice issues, child and family welfare treaty rights, environmental preservation, been heavily involved in the Dakota Access Pipeline fight, Line 3, KXL. Our other program is called Let's Green California. We launched it uh, at the end of 2015. And our goal is to work directly with communities to build solutions to the climate crisis from the ground up. We believe in taking a bit of a different approach from the typical approach, which is to maybe establish um, greenhouse gas emissions reduction targets and assign a regulatory agency to sort of figure out how we get there from a regulatory standpoint. We wanna sort of flip that approach on its head, engage directly with frontline communities and working families, identify what is the infrastructure that needs to be built so we can transition to a sustainable economy? How do we do it in such a way that we're lifting up those at the bottom, those in marginalized and disadvantaged communities? How do we ensure equity? How do we ensure that low and moderate income folks are leading the transition to a sustainable future rather than, as is so often the case, lagging behind in that. So over the last year and a half, we've been working on a comprehensive policy approach that would help reestablish California as the leader in the country on climate policy and really map out what it would take for our state to meet its 2030 greenhouse gas emissions reduction goals Again, doing so in a way that's creating good paying union jobs and rectifying environmental injustice. So we put together a policy approach called Electrify California. The principle is, is, is very simple. If we can transition away from fossil fuel driven technology to electric technology that's being powered by clean energy. By the way, I should point out, I think that over the weekend for the first time, 100% of the energy going into California's grid came from renewable sources. 
And so if we can transition to, to electric driven tech that's powered by clean energy, we can really radically and dramatically reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. It's more complicated than that. I will say there's a lot more to our policy framework than just electrification. There are pitfalls we need to be aware of. So, you know, we're very conscious of efficiency, very conscious of the principles of reduce, reuse, and recycle. We want to make sure that as we're electrifying, we're not increasing demand on the grid so much that we have to bring in new dirty sources of energy. So it's a, it's a very much a holistic approach, but electrification is at the core of it. And this year, what we've done is we've pulled out of our policy framework a couple of critical elements that's really focused on transportation. For those of you who don't know, California right now is not on track to meet its emissions reduction goals in the transportation sector. Transportation, when you take into account extraction of fuel and everything, accounts for about 50% of California's emissions. And so we're focused on transportation right now because it's the biggest bucket. And we believe California is poised for a breakthrough in the transition to zero emission vehicles or, and, or near zero emission vehicles. So primarily, at least in passenger cars, that means electric vehicles, right? They've sort of established themselves as the dominant player when it comes to passenger vehicles. There are other places in, you know, in, in the world that are ahead of California, which is somewhat ironic because you know, cars are really baked into California's past and its culture. It, in many ways, California has been the birthplace of the electric vehicle. So really California should be further ahead than it is. And we think that we're poised for a breakthrough. Something that's worth noting, for a number of years, we were sort of stuck at about 8% of new vehicle sa sales being zero emission vehicles. We've started to break out of that last year. I think we hit 12%. In the first quarter of this year, the sales data was just released and we hit 16% of sales, of automobile sales were um, electric vehicles or plug-in hybrid vehicles. And so the question then is, well, how do, we, how do we accelerate that adoption? How do we put California back in the leadership position? And there are two really big barriers to adoption of zero emission vehicles. The first, of course, is price, is cost. The, this new technology costs more than the technology it's replacing. So we have to figure out how to deal with the cost issue. The second issue is the lack of access to publicly available chargers. Charging infrastructure needs to be built out much faster. Right now, I think we've got something like 100,000 public chargers in the state of California. The California Energy Commission anticipates that we need 1.2 million public chargers by 2030. That's if we're going to meet the existing goals, which are already a little too slow. You may have seen the California Air Resources Board announced a draft rule recently that would get us to, I think, 68% of new vehicle sales being zero emission by 2030. We think we can and must go quite a bit faster. We're part of a coalition right now pushing for that to be 100% by 2030, which is not out of, uh, you know, out of question. The state of Washington recently passed a law that would set a similar goal. And so how do we address the price barrier and the charging barrier? We introduced Senate Bill 1230. The author for the bill is California State Senator Monique Lamone, who represents Ventura County and Santa Barbara County. And the bill would do two things. First, the state of California has some great incentives for electric cars, hydrogen fuel cell cars, zero emission vehicles. Unfortunately, the landscape of incentives is pretty confusing. There are five different programs. Some of them you have to apply for before you get the car. Some of them you can take at the dealer. Some of them you apply for after you purchase your car. And really what we have found in doing a lot of work over the last several years in organizing and educating low and moderate income communities about zero emission vehicles is we found that these incentives don't work for those communities for a couple of reasons. Number one, they don't have the expendable income to buy their car now and wait for a rebate later. So. There are a lot of studies that have been done on effective incentive design, and the core elements of effective incentive design are that the amount that you're going to get is clear, you understand what it is, the dealer understands what it is, and you can take that incentive at the point of sale. So our bill would simplify and streamline the process of receiving the state incentives for zero emission vehicles. It would create one application for all of the incentives 
a quick approval process for the incentives, and it would allow consumers to use those incentives at the dealer at the point of sale. Simplify and streamline the process and transform it in a way that would actually meet the needs of low and moderate income consumers. The second thing that our bill does is it proposes to rapidly increase the rate at which we're building electric vehicle charging infrastructure. The problem right now is that the build out of charging infrastructure lags behind demand. People are adopting these vehicles in a particular place and then the private sector comes in behind to meet that demand. We have to flip that script. We have to anticipate what demand is gonna be in a particular area and build the infrastructure this year to meet what the demand is going to be next year. And so what this bill does is it calls for an acceleration of the build out of charging infrastructure. And that's important for a few reasons. Number one, it will help give consumers the confidence that they need to make that switch to electric vehicles. But number two, it will create good paying green jobs. We, as we begin to electrify the state of California, we know that in a few years, we're gonna run into a challenge. And that challenge is there's gonna be a shortage of skilled and trained labor that can do that electrification work. So if we invest in the infrastructure build out now, and as that infrastructure is being built, the workers that are building that infrastructure are in apprenticeship programs, they're journeymen, they're part of training programs. We're gonna be growing the skilled and trained workforce that we need to do this work down the road. And the final thing that the bill calls for is it says that as we're building out this infrastructure, preference needs to be given to charging locations that are in disadvantaged communities because they're currently being left behind in that build out. Preference needs to be given to charging locations that are at or near multifamily housing because people who live in apartment buildings that maybe don't have their own dedicated parking space or their own garage have a real difficulty finding charging. And finally, preference needs to be given to new charging construction sites that will minimize demand on the grid by incorporating, for example, photovoltaic solar and battery storage. So that's the bill in a nutshell. It does two things. It simplifies and streamlines the process of learning about, applying for, and receiving incentives for zero emission vehicles. And it dramatically accelerates the build out of electric vehicle charging infrastructure. And I'll close, I'll close by saying that we believe that the way California can get to where we need to get to by 2030 in terms of our climate goals is to build a grand coalition. It's a real problem if our transition to a sustainable future is only benefiting those who are already at the top. We need to make sure that we're growing these solutions from the bottom up. And so we're working on bills like this that we believe lie at the intersection of not only traditional environmental concerns, but environmental justice concerns and equity, as well as the concerns of working families. We wanna to bring together into this coalition the traditional environmental movement, the environmental justice movement, the organized labor movement, people of faith, and many, many others. Only through the building of a large coalition can we build for ourselves the political power that we need to make these sorts of big changes. So Fantastic. I'll pause there. That's what we're doing and that's what we're working on. And Fantastic. thanks for the opportunity to share it with you all today. Thank you, Sluggo. I, I, have, I have a couple of questions for him, but go ahead, Sluggo. Well, first of all, uh, thank you. That's a brilliant presentation. I hope uh, 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 people understand that this is the kind of overview we're looking for. Uh, I do wanna have quick time to talk about the war against um, uh, photovoltaics and also the shocking veto that we got <clears throat> positive uh, from our Governor DeSantis of all people in Florida against an anti-solar bill. Uh, we do need to discuss that real quick. And, and also, I, uh, Tatanka, I'm sure you have great, great questions for uh, uh, Eric, uh, Sam, uh, Ben. <laughs> there you go, Ben. But thank you for this presentation. The real quick question I have is, do you have union support for this program? Are yeah. the unions supporting this? Th thanks for the question. Um, you, you've teed it up for me. I appreciate that. Right at the moment, we have about 85 plus organizations that have endorsed this legislation and that are supporting this legislation. That coalition includes Greenpeace, the Center for Biological Diversity, uh, the Climate Center, a lot of the traditional environmental organizations. And we've been fortunate also to receive some recent support from labor, the California Federation of Teachers, 
a Unite HERE local, some central labor councils, and just two weeks ago at the Environmental Quality Committee hearing of the State Senate in California, a representative from the State Electrical Workers Association got up and urged support of our bill, said it was very complimentary to their previous law that they worked on around workforce standards for electric vehicle charging build out. So as we're, we're continuing to grow this coalition, but yes, we have support from both sides of labor, from the service side, as well as from the building trade side. Fantastic. It's also bipartisan. We got our first Republican coming on board, right? That's correct, at yeah. the, the Transportation Committee. Is that Abraham Lincoln? <laughs> that was that was the one. No, uh, Brian, Brian Dolly, actually. Okay. Senator, State you know Senator that, Brian Dolly. You know that Abraham Lincoln is the first major politician in American history to endorse wind power. There's an amazing quote from Abraham Lincoln, which you should use, uh, saying that wind power is the great untapped resource of the future. But let me defer now to Tonka. It's all yours. People, raise your hands. Uh, we see Jeffrey's up. We're going we're gonna to wrap this in five or 10 minutes at the most so we can move ahead. But uh, go ahead, Tonka. Well, I just, I just wanted to say that it's, it's no uh, secret to environmental organizations that the major obstacle of getting anything done in California has been organized labor. And the Romero Institute behind the scenes and you particularly been with all these private meetings and bringing people together have just an amazing thing. So even the Central Labor Council and the IBEW for them to basically say, we don't oppose this bill just leaves open for all kinds of communication. Can you talk about that, what you've done behind the scenes to really break through this logjam? <laughs> well, what we've been doing is really is genuinely saying what sorts of policies can we support that are going to benefit workers? And I, I believe that if we or any organization is genuine and taking that approach to policy solutions that they're proposing, then we're going to earn the support of the organizations that represent workers. So for the last year and a half, here on the Central Coast, we've been working in very close partnership with a number of labor organizations, including the IBEW, to implement work strong workforce standards at our clean energy entities up and down California, saying that when we're building new renewable energy resources, we need to have a certain set of workforce standards that we're following. We need to make sure that workers are in training programs. We need to be using certified electricians. We need to make sure that they're being paid prevailing wage, et cetera. So first, Tatanka, we've been partnering very closely on on-the-ground initiatives with our partners in labor. And then as well, we've been having, you know, trying to open up and, you know, host a productive dialogue with leaders at the statewide level around what sorts of statewide policies are going to really benefit workers, create the kinds of good-paying jobs that we want to see. Again, it's, to it's, a, it's a simple, I think, flip of the approach. Instead of saying, hey, we're going to get to 100% zero emission vehicles, and hey, trust us workers, you'll be taken care of. Uh-uh. We need to introduce legislation that explicitly and proactively addresses the needs of working families. Thank you. Fantastic. We have some quick questions from Joel, Ron, and Jeffrey. Joel, I think you were first, but go ahead. Go ahead. You're, you you're muted. You're muted, Joel. Still muted. Okay. Um, yeah, the host. Jeffrey, you can unmute. Now we can um, hear you. Go ahead. Uh, Ron, you can unmute so we can get right to you. And Joel, then we're going we to switch over to Arizona. But go, yeah, go the, ahead, uh, you guys. Go the ahead. Mute, mute is controlled by the engineers. So thank you, engineers. You're, you're good. You're good. All right. Um, so first of all, thank you for that wonderful explanation of the California plan. Um, I have talked to a lot of people who are you know, very intelligent who say, Great idea, 100% cleanable energy, not technologically feasible because we don't have battery storage. You don't have enough storage. So what are you gonna do at night? And in Australia, I work with you know, Dr. Mark Jacobson at Stanford who probably has, I think is the most knowledgeable engineer on clean renewable energy. But how do, you, how do you answer that question? And then the last question I have is, if there's no bill in Congress by the squad, by quote unquote progressives to transition us, us to 100% clean renewable energy. And 13,000 scientists have said we have less than 10 years to survive climate change. Why don't we have a federal bill in Congress that would mirror the California bill 
that doesn't make sense to me as someone who worked in the Congress who would like to save the planet. Thank you. Great question, Joel. Thank you so much. The, you've brought up actually a number of issues. I think we could have probably a two-hour chat about that. <laughs> I would love to do that sometime. Let me just quickly say storage is a huge issue, right? Just to make sure that everyone understands renewable energy is intermittent. We get solar when the sun shines. We get wind when the wind blows. And so if we need energy on demand at a particular moment in time, how do we deal with that? We've got to be able to store that energy somehow. The, you know, what I would say is we're going to be able to get to 90% renewable energy pretty quickly and without too much trouble. And we should be laser focused on doing that. That last 10% is going to be difficult. It's probably going to require some new technology, but let's focus on that low hanging fruit. Let's get to 90% as quickly as possible. I'm really happy to say there's a bill that was just introduced uh, very recently, Senate Bill 1020 in California. It would propose to speed up the timeline at which we get to 90% renewable. We totally support that bill. In terms of federally, let me just say this, the bipartisan, well, there was the bipartisan infrastructure bill and then there's Build Back Better. Build Back Better, unfortunately, is completely stalled. At some point, we must turn our attention to getting that bill passed. It would do a lot of good things. But here's the other thing I would say. I was a student of political science. I had the great fortune of studying under some really brilliant scholars on American politics. And here's one thing that I learned. Big change in this country comes from the states first. It percolates up to the state, uh, to the, our nation's capital. A great example, of course, is uh, the rights to gay marriage. It started at the state level first and it caught fire okay. and it got up to DC quickly. We need to do the same thing on climate. California, Washington State, New York, Massachusetts. We need to start creating a model for how this can be done. And if enough states do it, I believe it will percolate up to DC and we can make that change at the federal level. Okay, great, very good. We got, we're almost out of time here for this. Um, uh, we're gonna have to go next week. I just gonna mention everybody that Governor DeSantis, Ron DeSantis, uh, thanks to lobbying from Wendy Wiederman, did uh, veto uh, the bill on uh, killing uh, rooftop solar. We will deal with that in great detail next week. Uh, ben, you should come back and join that discussion on rooftop solar. Jeffrey, uh, then Ron, and then we're gonna go to John Brakey, please. Jeffrey, real quick. Very, very interesting in your project. Like you said, like you said about all that, all that, you know, all that environmental stuff. I just can't, I just can't get the right. Okay. Any, any, anyway, anyway, I just. Thank you. Anyway, I would like to invite. I would. I'm. Really closing the closing the Diablo nuclear plant is a, is a, is a you know, it's a priority. So I would like to invite invite you to a Greenpeace USA mobilized action pod, pod that I created created for you know, for the observance of the International Radiation Awareness Day. I know I know I've said this okay. idea before for elsewhere and where do would you like to attend? Yes, Did thank you, you Jeffrey. Absolutely. And Ben, we'll we'll link you up I'll with that. I will point out that um I have an article today, Steve, if you can put the um, uh, link in the chat at Reader Supported News. It was just published uh, about uh, shutting Diablo Canyon. Uh, God help us if they keep that thing going. We really need to shut it as soon as possible. Also a piece at the nation uh, today, which has lost its mind on nuclear power. Ron Leonard, uh, go ahead, and then we're gonna give it to John Brakey and Ken Bennett. And, and Tataka, you'll get a, a last word. So ben, ben, you did a great job uh, and I got good news for you. The good news is that <clears throat> we do have a way to get to 100% renewable energy and that is right now. And in fact, two scientists, both related, uh, Mark Perez and the more famous Dr. Richard Perez uh, have done the definitive study on that on the largest grid in New York, in the United States, the Mid-Hudson Grid. And uh, we've proven how we could do it more economically, faster, and um, more equitably than any other form of energy. And the other little piece that we're talking about, uh, uh, Governor DeSantis in Florida, his excuse for uh, uh, vetoing the bill that was passed by both legislatures uh, to kill net metering in Florida was specifically because he didn't wanna pass on the burden of extra costs to ratepayers in Florida. So thank you, Governor DeSantis, 
but the issue points out what's in it for me is a big motivating factor. And uh, Wendy, I'm sure you realize that uh, people uh, would get very angry if they found out that part of that bill that the legislature passed allowed people to get an enormous rate increase in Florida, and that would fall back on the governor's neck. Very good. Thank you for that. Uh, to talk, uh, we can give Wendy a last word and then move over to John Brakey and Ken Bennett. Yes, I just want to say if anybody wants to, uh, any particular person here is interested in joining our Wednesday night call, just put in the chat and I will mail you an invite. This is our circle of 100 in which Ben, uh, Danny Sheehan, Dolores Huerta, Heidi Harmon are present. Thank you. Thank you, Tatanka. Very, very well done. Ben, thank you. We definitely want you back next week to go again into this war on renewables. Wendy Lederman, and then we'll go straight to John Brakey. Thank you so much. Um, I'll just quickly say I put the veto text in the, um, the chat, and I think that we could be optimistic about it because it does state that he doesn't want that that customers are already burdened by the high cost of everything. And I'm not really sure. But next week, we'll clarify what Ron's saying because I'm not really clear on that. But um, but it's a very positive move. It's an awesome thing. And everyone's going to have to follow. I mean, if he's a super conservative, what are Democrats going to do and anybody blue? Like he, it's what for whatever it's worth, it's blazing the trail. I'm just really excited to see um, Dr. Carolyn Orr here and John Brakey and Ken Bennett and such a wonderful crew. And I can't wait to get on with the rest of this. And I hope um, Tatanka and Ben hook up with um, Carolyn Orr when she gets to talk. We will make sure that happens. Thank, thank you, Wendy. You so I just want to I just want to thank Ben and also uh, glad to be on for John Brakey and for Ken Bennett. Thanks. Hey, okay. thank you all for thank having you me. so much. There's a ton more, Ben. We'll have you back next week. There's a ton more on this. And of course, Arizona, uh, to do a little lobbying, has three nuclear reactors that we'd love to see shut. And of course, all the sun uh, that it could ever need uh, to power the state with 100% renewables. Uh, we have 68 people on the call. Uh, 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 John Brakey and Ken Bennett, uh, we are, are, are in, in great anticipation of hearing what you have to say. Uh, John Brakey, take it away, please. Okay, I guess I'm unmuted and Joel is supposed to jump in here with us. He's going to, <coughs> pardon me, do part of the interview. Uh, Joel, are you there? He is. Joel Siegel is uh, there and uh, we wanna welcome him and Ken Bennett. Uh, John, can you explain uh, Ken Bennett's uh, position in, in the state of Arizona? I certainly can. You know, first off, uh, you know, Ken Bennett and me have become good friends over the last year. Ken Bennett, uh, Ken Roy Bennett is an American businessman, a politician who served as the president of the uh, Arizona Senate for four years. Wow. Ken served as the 19th Secretary of State of Arizona from 2009 to 2015. He was a candidate for governor of Arizona in the primary of 2014 and 2018. Ken Bennett was the liaison for the Maricopa audit by what being done by the cyber ninjas. And he was appointed uh, by the Arizona secretary, uh, by, I'm sorry, he was the, uh, pardon me, he was the appointed by the president of the state Senate, Karen Fan, but he was not, involved in the hiring the cyber ninjas. He came in afterwards. I can tell you one of the best things about knowing Ken Bennett is that he has to be one of the most principled, honest Republicans that I've ever worked with. And it's a pleasure for me to bring Ken Bennett to this forum, introduce you to him and have him explain to you how we put this bill together. Because one thing Ken Bennett is really good is that explaining things. And out of this work that we did, we come up with what I personally call the Arizona miracle that really could stretch across this country and help of many states. You know, on the 12th, I leave Arizona for two weeks and I'm off to North Carolina. And I'm over there to spread the word of ballot images, transparent elections, and, uh, and hopefully, by that time, the bill will be close to passing or may pass. So anyway, Ken Bennett, thank you very much. Joel, are you there? Do you want to say anything before Ken jumps in? Just very briefly, um, Secretary of State Bennett, what an honor to uh, make a few introductory remarks. I'm going to be brief because we want to hear from you. Never thought in my lifetime I would ever get a chance to talk with you. But you you and I are about the same age, but you have more hair than, than me. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, 
Ken was a city council member as well. Uh, he is running for the state Senate. But if you want to look at a profile on courage, uh, Secretary of State Bennett was so effective in his advocacy for democracy that they would not let, uh, I'll just say Senator Bennett, I, I don't know what building it was, but they would not allow him into the building when they were doing the recount. Now, that is pretty amazing um, in terms of a profile on courage. You know, the second point I want to make, I, I've been in government, well, I was in government for 32 years. If you want to be successful in government, you have to work both sides of the aisle. Our organization and coalition is strictly nonpartisan. I fell in love with constitutional law when I was in law school. Um, we are about adhering to the constitution. We're about defending democracy. Uh, Ken, you are welcome in our family. And I wanna make sure that you know, you know that. Uh, my closest colleagues, I would say in the Congress was Walter Jones because he was from North Carolina, which is where I'm from. Uh, it is absolutely a mythology that Republicans and Democrats have nothing in common. That's, that's not true. Um, lastly, what I'll say in conclusion is thank God for you, Secretary of State Bennett, for standing up for principle, standing up for democracy in the face of, you know, amazing odds uh, against what you were doing. And for that, you deserve a round of applause and the Greep Profile and Courage Award plaque, which I hope we'll give you one day. John Brakey, thank you for your you know, incredible service, Arizona Sluggo. Thank you for your leadership. Uh, Ken, without further ado, you know, the floor is yours. I do want to say that one thing that I talked to John about this and Harvey and Mike Hirsch, we need to have Republicans like you going on a tour across the country especially in the red states, on what I would call a democracy tour. We have to have moderate Republicans like yourself say to Americans, this election was not stolen. If we don't do that, our democracy is being threatened. And it's something I want to talk to you about offline uh, at okay. some point, because you have so much credibility. But what an honor to meet you, sir, and thank you for defending democracy in Arizona and across our nation. The floor is yours, Secretary of State Bennett. Thank you. Thanks, Joel. Those are very kind words, and, and John as well. Uh, and by the way, Joel, if you call me a moderate Republican, you will destroy my credibility <laughs> with most Republicans in Arizona. I actually consider myself a very strong conservative, but I learned to work with people probably in two different places. One, uh, the four years I was president of the Arizona Senate, we had a Democrat governor named Janet Napolitano. And we both had to recognize, as I think we did, uh, that you got to give and take and work together to get things done. Uh, when I was Secretary of State for Arizona for six years, uh, we, had we have 15 counties and eight of them had elected officials as county recorders or county election directors that were Democrats and seven of the counties were Republicans. Uh, I, I took it on myself to disregard what their party affiliation was and just be the leader of the election family in Arizona. And so if I learned from those two experiences that if you put aside the party uh, labels um, and focus on getting to the truth, uh, solving problems for your state, uh, I think you can get a lot done. And one of the things that I've learned um, in my eight years in the legislature, six years as secretary, and in uh, seven or eight um, very scrutinizing and scrutinized months as the liaison to the audit, um, is that our elections need to be what John Brakey and Audit USA, his organization down in Tucson, have been calling for for 18 years. And that is, they've gotta be transparent, they've gotta be trackable, and they've gotta be publicly verified. And one of the things that the audit did not do that it should have done is focus on areas where you could open the records of the audit or of the election uh, to anyone who wants to audit. And essentially what I came to believe after being the, the Senate's uh, requested liaison, I came to believe that elections need to be audited within 10 days, not 10 months later. Uh, and the way to do that is a bill that John and I have been champion in 
Champion Neen in the legislature this year, House Bill 2780, sponsored by one of the more most conservative members of the Arizona legislature, and that's saying something. Um, but it basically speaks to complete transparency and it does four things. At least 10 days before the election, counties would publish in a sortable form, downloadable sortable format, the registered voters by name, street address, and precinct. Within two days of the canvas of the election after the election, they would release a list of who voted in the election. Now, obviously, who, the people who voted in the election should be on the list of people who vote, who were eligible to vote, who were registered to vote. And that alone would dispel intense um, allegations that were, were used by those that tried to whip up the frenzy of the election was stolen in Arizona, who said that there were you know, tens of thousands of ghost votes or ghost voters who had voted but were not eligible or registered to vote in the first place, which is totally ridiculous. Um, now, could we do a better job in Arizona uh, and maybe in every state on keeping our voter rolls clean and, and uh, accurate and updated? Absolutely. But if we had a list of who was registered to vote and who voted, and you could tell that everyone on the who voted list was registered to vote, that would dispel a lot of the crap that we had to deal with. Pardon my French. Um, the second or the third and fourth items that would be released to the public by each county at each election would be the ballot images that were scanned in as the ballots were processed in that election. And of course, there should be a ballot image for every one person that voted, no more, no less. And then the fourth thing is something called the cast vote record, which is just what it says. It's the record of the votes cast. It's essentially a spreadsheet where each ballot that is processed, and you don't know whose ballot an image of a ballot is or a record on the cast vote record, but each row on the cast vote record represents one ballot. Row number 136 is the 136th ballot processed in the election. The columns on the cast vote record are the choices that the voters had and selected on their ballots. So you might have Trump in column D and Biden in column E and Jorgensen in column F or whatever, but you can see in a detailed way what choices are reflected in the cast vote record as having come from the ballots themselves. And you can go to that same ballot and look and see that they are correctly reflected in the cast vote record. And then you can add up the rows in the cast vote record and see that the, the totals for each candidate in each race as reported by each county add up to the numbers that are in the cast vote record. And if that had been done in, in the Arizona audit, we would have seen as some private organizations did that, that there were 40,000 voters in Maricopa County who were voting for almost exclusively Republicans down their ballot, but did not select Trump at the top of their ballot. Now, there were some, some Democrats doing the reverse. There was about 20,000 ballots on which voters were selecting mostly Democrats on down ballot races, but did not select Biden at the top. But if you take 40,000 votes from presumably Republican voters away from Trump and 20,000 away from Biden from the Democrats, that's still a 20,000 advantage to Biden, and Biden won um, Arizona by 10,457 votes, about 40,000 in Maricopa. But what happened is we got a technical problem here. Can um, there's some going can, on? Trump won the sixth bill. I, I won't go there. Let's go. open it up for questions. But this is a bill that has passed the House, House Bill 2780. We now have it in the Senate. John and I have spent most of our time uh, lobbying Democrats in the Senate, many of whom I have a wonderful working relationship with as well. And we are very optimistic, having worked with the County Association of Counties and their lobbyists 
that we now have the bill to a point where they are going to be neutral and we have an excellent opportunity to get bipartisan support on this bill. And in fact, we, we don't want the bill to pass with just Republican votes, even as a, a Republican. I want the bill to pass with both Republican and Democrat votes. And the four years that I was Senate president are the only four years in the last 40 years in the history of Arizona where the state budgets passed with a majority of Republicans supporting that state budget in the legislature and a majority of Democrats supporting those budgets as well. Now, Janet Napolitano had a lot to do about getting those Democrats to support, but I had as Senate president a lot to do with getting the Republicans. And John and I want a majority of both caucuses supporting this bill in its passage. Well, first, let me say uh, an incredibly impressive presentation there. Thank you very, very much. We have 73 people on the line, and I'm sure that uh, at least 74 of them uh, understand the, the gravity of what you just told us here. Uh, so you're telling us, uh, I assume the governor will support this bill as well, Ken Bennett? We're not well, I ran, against, I, ran, I ran against our governor twice in the last two uh, Republican primaries in Arizona, so I'm not going to go out on a limb and try to predict what Doug Ducey is going to do, but uh, I believe that he will support the bill if it passes, especially with bipartisan support in both the House and the Senate. So this, this bill, 2780, essentially uh, provides a technological framework whereby we can 100% uh, verify our elections within 24 hours, basically. Is that correct? Yes, yes. Is there any other state in the country that has a similar uh, setup? Uh, I would defer to John. I know that John works in multiple states. And it's ironic that in other states, it's Democrats leading the charge to have ballot images made public. In Arizona, it's a Republican and a Democrat. But so far, the bill has advanced through the House successfully and is in the Senate uh, by exclusively Republican votes. So it's, I'm not quite sure what to say why transparency and trackability and being able to publicly verify our elections uh, seems to catch fire with one party in some states or be supported by a diff the other party in other states. But our goal is for Arizona to be an example of how it needs to be, and that is complete transparency, complete trackability, complete public ver ver publicly verified, supported by both Republicans and Democrats. Well, I hope everybody on the call understands. I'm sure uh, they do. There's now, somehow these calls keep going. There's now 75 people on the call. I hope under, everybody understands the gravity of who has presented this bill to us. I mean, this is an actual revolution, unprecedented in American history in terms of the conduct of our elections. Uh, there, there's, there's no... To my knowledge, as a historian, there's no there's no parallel uh, to this technological capability in our entire history. I mean, we have a history of ballot boxes winding up in rivers and 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 farm animals uh, eating voter tallies. That's not going to happen anymore if this happens. I want to call on Connie Klein. Uh, Connie, what? I don't think I thought remember. you said I'm next. I'm on stack. No, Connie Klein, uh, and then Eric Lazarus. Uh, John, if you want to jump in, John Brakey. And well, I just want to add one thing Please. is that uh, we, we call this the Arizona miracle because it came out of the fraudent, okay? And I'd say this, where me and Ken really bonded is that we fought for transparency together and we were shut down by others. And then I saw them psychologically lead people to start abusing Ken Bennett, you know, by... Uh, keeping him out of certain rooms or saying, hey, Ken has a fault. He's honest to a fault. Okay. <laughs> well, I prefer my politicians that way, honest to a fault. Excuse me. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, uh, if this Maryland is already doing audits, uh, we a lot of states are giving it, but most are destroying. It's very important when this bill flies out of Arizona and if we got bipartisan support, we need to launch it nationally. Okay, that's why I'm going to North Carolina. That's why we're probably going to be doing litigation in Michigan. In the state of Michigan, they're destroying public records because they might cause long lines. The ballot images. How about that one, huh? 
I can't Same believe way. it. I've heard all sorts of excuses. Let's but go I, to I'll say that this is great experience working with Ken. And then Ken uh, is going to be joining our board. And then we're going to try to get him on the road and to talk about nonpartisan, how to achieve these goals, how we have to be able to agree that the black box must become transparent. Okay. You know, as Bill Reisner would say, that gee, we should be able to break it down with Republicans and Democrats to get to a basic thing, okay? That anything that goes into the black box must be perfectly added up, transparent, trackable, publicly verified with a ballot library. And then we can go back and we'll fight about other things, okay? Like okay, John. Let me get to let me get to let me get to Connie Klein, Eric Lazarus. Ken, did you want to jump in? No, no, I want. I wanted to advocate going to Connie. And Sluggo, Connie, go for it. Sluggo, I also want us to recognize Sluggo. I want us to recognize Dan O'Neill, who has uh, studied the legislation that we're talking about. Okay. Well, let's do Connie, Eric, and then Dan O'Neill. Go ahead, Connie, please. Um, just very quickly, <clears throat> my my question has sort of been answered. <clears throat> I was wondering what kind of what sense uh, people are getting for support for a national bill like this? Um, whether there's feelers that have been put out. Uh, uh, Ken or, or John, do you can you answer that? Connie is uh, a I've great been, activist. I've been totally, uh, Connie, I've been totally focused on Arizona. Uh, so I would defer to John if, um, as to other states around the country. Well, John, John I think, Okay. Um, what we're hoping to do, uh, what we're hoping to do, make it quick, is that after this bill passes, I'll be in North Carolina. We're also going to try to get to Keith Ellison, who is the Attorney General of Minnesota. We want the Attorney Generals of Minnesota to contact the other Attorney Generals and make sure that public records in this country that could prove that elections are real are not destroyed. Hopefully, Ken will be able to get with our Republican attorney. And then we're going to try to get the Jamie Raskins, who is phenomenal. His state is okay. doing it Jamie right. Raskin, the, the elections in the House committees. Yes. Okay. That's the, con the congressman from Maryland, he's a good choice. And I, I think we have contacts both with Keith Ellison and Jamie Raskin that can help us. Eric Lazarus and then Dan O'Neill. Um, hey, um, Mr. Bennett, um, congratulations. It sounds like your partnership um, um, with John Brakey is having um, amazing results. Um, you'll see that I put my email and phone number um, into the chat. Um, I have a presentation about some advanced technology around uh, election integrity. I would love to give um, a presentation to you. Um, maybe there's even a possible joint article uh, that would be awesome um, with some election integrity researchers. If you can have someone on your staff reach out to me, I'll be forever grateful. Thank Great. you so much. Thank you, Thank you very you. much. I'm honored. Uh, 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 do that. Put that in the chat. We'll make that happen, Eric. Uh, Dan O'Neill and then Mimi Kennedy has posted an important um, a note in the chat. Uh, if, if Mimi, if you want to stay on, uh, you'll be after Dan O'Neill. Uh, Dan, go ahead. Hi, everybody. Uh, thank you. This is fantastic. I see 76 people on the call. So for full disclosure, just let me know, uh, let me, everyone know, I am the state coordinator, Arizona State Coordinator for Progressive Democrats of America. I've known John Brakey for 15, 16, 17. John and I go way back. He's a brother of mine. We've worked together in the trenches, okay? And I really respect all of the work that he's done over the years. Uh, I really do. Ken Bennett, I respect you for dealing with uh, the, the cyber ninjas the way you did, but when you were when you were in the, the legislature and in power, I didn't support anything you supported. But that's okay because I'm a Democrat and you're a conservative Republican, like you said. Okay. Now, I hate to be a Danny Downer, but I'm gonna. I just talked to Martin Casada, who is the PDA most progressive senator in the state of Arizona, and he's a state senator, and he's running for state treasurer, about this bill. And there are four major things wrong with this bill as it is writ as it is now. Now, it can be fixed. And John Brakey and I have had long conversations about how 
it needs to be fixed. There needs to be rewritten and, and updated and changed. But as it is right now, Ken says that he hopes to get Democratic support. You will get no, zero Democratic support with the, with the well, let me finish, with the bill that is, is the way it's written right now. Zero. Right now, it passed through committee uh, with, with like, I don't know how many Was there an Adam? Was there an Eve? Or did we evolve from what we conceived? Either way, we got what we needed when the sun shone down on the Garden of Eden.